It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. once said, Controversy equalizes fools and wise men in the same way, and the fools know it. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or on our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough CQ Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what's the agenda for today? Well, Rick, our question is, does the Apostle Paul contradict himself? Part 2 Contradiction Series. And our theme texts are found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 and 5. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For every man shall bear his own burden. Okay, so does the Apostle Paul contradict himself? Part 2. Let's think about it this way. In many ways, the Apostle Paul can be likened to a magnet. Over the last 2,000 years, his preaching, teaching, and writing have attracted countless millions to seek out what being a Christian really means. He was a leader in every sense of the word. He lived his faith to Jesus Christ without reservation, and uh, Christians throughout the age have been inspired by his example. This same Apostle Paul was also a magnet for trouble. His ministry way back then drew incredible conflict and persecution and even led to his death. Today, the same controversy surrounds his legacy. While so many of us cling to his example and teachings, others are repelled by him and label him as a self-contradicting, hypocritical deceiver. So coming up in today's podcast, is he a hero or a villain? Helpful or hurtful? Does the Apostle Paul teach consistently regarding to help others, or is he nonsensical? Does Paul intimate that Satan actually has more power than God? Come on. Our first two segments address these particular questions. Some say Paul appointed himself as an apostle as an extension of his egotism. They say he also taught us to be rude and kind to unbelievers. Really? Segments three and four tackle those issues. And finally, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, and Paul are accused of dramatically contradicting each other in their accounts of Paul's life. So, do they? We will uncover the truth in segment five. Rick, who is right? Was Paul a teacher of truth or contradiction? That's what we're here for, and that's why we brought Julie back with us, because whenever we talk about contradictions, she seems to show up. Julie, how you oh, doing? No, that's no good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, Rick and Jonathan. <laughs> well, this is part two of a four-part series that we're doing about the Apostle Paul. And I expected atheists to have some unresolved issues with the Bible, but I was surprised that there are many sincere Christians who are having difficulty with apparent contradictions in the life and teachings of Paul. So we gathered some of the most often cited problems, and we are addressing them one at a time. We hope everyone has listened to part one, 
It's an easy episode number to remember. It's 1111. Uh, but as a quick reminder, we offered four basic rules when examining scriptures that look like they contradict each other. In brief, these were, it could be a copy or translation error, differing eyewitness accounts, context of the writings, and context of time, meaning all scriptures do not apply to all people at all times. So last week, many of the contradictions raised were resolved by simply reading the context, and we'll find that with some of them on this program as well. Okay, so we're going to get started uh, by going to a soundbite. And the soundbite is, the, the title is, The Apostle Paul Was the Antichrist According to the First Christians. And this is from Christian-Dilemmas.com. So quite an interesting title. Let's just hear their introduction to their statement. Remember, the word apostle was reserved for those who were with Jesus and witnessed his doings. Paul claimed to be an apostle, and the Christian church calls him an apostle. Even though he was not involved or even knew Jesus, he had died long before Paul. Well, if you take uh, the conventional Christian, Lutheran sort of a view of, of Paul, he is uh, a convert from Judaism to Christianity. Paul not only becomes a follower of the sect he persecuted, but imagines himself to be an apostle and an authority on Jesus. Out of nowhere, the guy says, you know, I'm not only a Christian, I'm an apostle. I'm on the level with the, the guys that Jesus actually taught. You know, there's a lot of things we could say about that. I'm going to hold my tongue for now. <laughs> but the idea that he, he makes himself this or that is a, a, a scriptural, it's a biblical absurdity to make such a claim. We'll just leave it at that. So we're going to get right into the contradictions supposedly that exist. So here, to get started, contradiction or needing a clear explanation is bearing the burdens of others the way to go, or are we supposed to each be responsible for our own burdens? So, Jonathan, what's the issue here? Well, Rick, Paul begins by saying we must bear others' burdens. Let's start with Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, listen to this. Paul, just three verses later, says the opposite in Galatians 6, verse 5. For every man shall bear his own burden. So, which is it? Now, the word bear means to lift. And Rick, um, I just have to ask, are we trying to retract or rephrase what Paul is saying? No, we're simply trying to understand what Paul is saying. There's a big difference. You can say, well, no, he said that, but he didn't really mean that. What we're looking to do is go into the, 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 the context, the words, the who's speaking, to, who is speaking and who is he speaking to and why, and put it together and say, okay, here's what he actually said because of all of these other factors. So, no, we're not trying to rephrase it to make it go away. We're trying to understand it to find the truth of the matter of what he said. So the controversy is, are we supposed to bear our burdens individually or collectively? And I noticed, Jonathan, you read both verses from the King James Version, which uses the words burden in both verses. Now, it seems silly to think the Apostle Paul, or anyone for that matter, would make a completely opposite statement in the same paragraph. So let's look closer at the context, because if we understand the context and the words, we find the answer. 
And the answer seems so obvious that I don't think the people raising the question really want an answer. Um, so you read from Galatians 6. Now, Paul's letter to the Galatian has six chapters. This is his closing words in the letter. It's about treating each other compassionately with humility and pulling our own weight. So let's look more closely at the first five verses from Galatians 6, starting with Galatians 6, 1 to 5. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know, I just wanted to say one quick thing. You know, you said if a man be overtaken in a fault, and again, that was the King James, but the New International Version says this, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may be tempted. So if I get from I get that from that is our obligation is to humbly and kindly try to help them find the right path back without getting stuck in whatever sinful thoughts and practices they're dealing with. When the text says being overtaken or caught by a sin shows that maybe it took this person by surprise. And for our day, I think of something like an addiction or an inappropriate attraction to something or someone that, you know, takes you by surprise that you may need a little extra help in. So now let's try to apply that. And let's read verse two, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the meaning of the word burden means weight in the New Testament, only figuratively, a load, abundance, or authority. Okay, so it's a simple definition, bear ye one another's weights. Now, we'll, we'll expand that a little bit as we go. So I think these, these special burdens are extra heavy loads or experiences. Um, you know, I am my brother's keeper, right? So we are supposed to step in with a spirit of love and responsibility and honesty and not gossipy or, or judgmental. But next comes another warning to be truly humble and for each to be fully accountable for themselves in verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. You know, there's this commentary we found, uh, Albert Barnes says on this, he will not be dependent on the applause of others for happiness. In a proving conscience, in the evidence of the favor of God, in an honest effort to lead a pure and holy life, he will have happiness. Boy, I really love that. Not dependent on the applause of others for happiness. So Paul is setting up the personal responsibilities that we have to be humble. You can't think of yourself to be too much. You have to be humble in this. And it's because you are serving God, that's the, the, the source of your true happiness. And that leads us to verse 5 for the context. For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, the word burden in verse 5 um, means an invoice as part of a freight. That is figuratively a task or service. So the word burden in verse 5 has a completely different meaning from the word burden in verse 2. This word um, is completely different. It is. An invoice uh, as part of freight. It's literally a bill of lading. That, so, so in other words, carry what's assigned to you. 
Is that like cargo in a ship? Yes. The bill of lading cargo. So you've had the big shipload of stuff that's right. your responsibility. Right, right. And that's what you're supposed to take care of. So, you know, this is this is not that hard. There is not a contradiction. It's two different words. And if whoever is saying, well, look at the Apostle Paul contradict himself, would be so kind as to say, you know, the English language in different translations may not find the actual meaning of a word maybe we should look into those things before we make such a conclusion because it's very obviously a different thing. So what, Julie, you got something? Well, so in other words, we have to, we are, so should we care for each other? Yes. Yes. Should we care for ourselves? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and, and in different ways. So Jonathan, let, let, or let's, let's get to the conclusion. It is critically clear to examine words and context if we want truth. And as a practical application of that, Paul is explaining that we need to thoroughly support one another while being diligent to manage our own personally assigned responsibilities. So there is no contradiction. It makes no sense to say it's a contradiction. We help each other bear the weight of their experiences, and we take care of what we're responsible for. It's a simple, simple thing. Let's not try to make trouble where no trouble actually exists. So look, simple answers are often the best answers. To find the simplicity, we just need to dig a bit deeper than others. Paul seems to hint that Satan's role in his life was more overpowering than God. Could this be true? Our team of volunteers are accomplishing amazing work every week as we release new audio, video, and web content, helping create the Christian Questions Multimedia Ministry. There are several ways you can get more involved in our not-for-profit mission. Click on Support CQ in our main menu on ChristianQuestions.com. We have clearly established that Paul was surrounded by controversy, difficulty, and threats. With that being said, it's absolutely reasonable to expect that Satan did play a major role in his life and ministry. The most important thing to understand is what that role was and what the results were. So we're going to get started with this uh, this segment again with another uh, soundbite from the Apostle Paul was the Antichrist— to the first Christians from ChristianDilemmas.com. And before you play it, Rick, um, now, that you, title. You got a bone Paul to pick was, before we I start? A, I have a problem with Paul <laughs> okay. being the Antichrist here. But think about it. Saul was a persecutor before his conversion. He was an enemy against Christ as Saul. He fits the term Antichrist, but not as Paul. When Jesus showed himself to him, and he gave him his mission. From that point on, he followed Christ. He was no longer against Christ. Right. And and so, you know, th- that's a dramatic, dramatic accusation to say Paul is the Antichrist, okay? Let's listen to the soundbite, and then we'll go from there. But however it happened, he, he becomes a, uh, a Christian and decides that uh, the Torah is no longer binding, that Jews uh, may keep it if they wish, but they're, they're grossly mistaken, even to the point of spiritual peril if they think they must. Uh, he describes himself as being uh, born to the Jewish tradition, but he does not think we, we should follow the law as Christians. Uh, and he's being opposed there by Cephas, a lot of people say it's Peter, um, who was an actual disciple of Christ. Now, in any argument between Peter and Paul, guess who would have the advantage, right? 
it wouldn't be Paul, it would be Peter. Peter could say to Paul all the time, listen, uh, Paul, I was with Jesus. I was a friend of Jesus, and you are an interloper. You, you've never even met the guy, right? Okay, so Paul's an interloper. However, it happened that he became a, a, a disciple. You know, you, you look at these things, and there's these dramatic, dramatic assumptions in their thinking. And Jonathan, the thing about this particular soundbite that really gets to me is he's saying they're, they're referencing the time when, when, when Paul faces off with Peter because he began to ignore the Gentile Christians and went to sit with the Jewish Christians. And Paul said, that's not right. So what they're saying with their commentary is if you have the interchange between Paul and Peter, Peter always has the upper hand. Peter's always right because Peter was with Jesus. So they're saying it was right for Peter to ignore the Gentile Christians. I don't know. doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And what about they said he never saw Jesus? Well, Ananias is proof positive that he spoke with him because he told him the same words that Paul received. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Jesus. exactly. And, and again, all of that, you know, whatever they do with it, they do with it. So let's get on to our next supposed contradiction. So next point, contradiction or needing a clear explanation. What is it, Julie, we're talking about? So was God stronger or Satan stronger in Paul's ministry work? Well, on one side, Paul clearly shows God's strength in his ministry. First Thessalonians 2, verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So that is the one side. Now here's the other. Paul clearly shows Satan's power to overshadow his ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, and yet Satan hindered us. So clearly, Rick, both... God and Satan influenced Paul's experiences. Okay, Julie, what do we do with it? Well, you know, once again, Paul's never going to contradict himself within just a few paragraphs. <laughs> That'd be ridiculous. So if we understand the immediate and larger context, we find the answer. Now, in part one of this topic, remember episode 1111, 1111, yeah, that's four of them. We talked about how Paul explained to the church at Thessalonica all the hardships he was going through. And we had dealt last week with a supposed contradiction about whether Paul was a people pleaser or a God pleaser. But here he makes the point that God was stronger than anyone or anything Paul encountered. If we can drop back a little bit, uh, drop back into 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exaltation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So, so, so Paul is clearly focused on being the servant of God, and he said, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you, even though there was all of this difficulty surrounding us. So he's showing the power of God in his every word, his every move, his every action, his every thought. Now, but later in that same chapter, Paul's encouraging their continued faithfulness, and notice who he points out is opposing him. And this is 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, 16, and 18. 
For you, brethren, become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, and with the result that they also fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So before we go into 17 and 18, you see that there is there there is controversy coming, not specifically from Satan, but their own countrymen, even as as, as did from the Jews. And and we were talking before the podcast about their own countrymen, especially being the spiritual leaders amongst them. So this is a source of dramatic uh, and 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 uh, harsh, very harsh opposition. So Paul, they basically made it so he wasn't allowed to come back into the city. Yeah, yeah, that was the problem. And that's pretty harsh, I would say. You yeah, know, he couldn't get to his church in Thessalonica. So you have this sense of, 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 of an overriding difficulty, okay? You say, well, is that bigger than Paul? Well, okay, Paul next gives the bigger picture of the opposition from, from a slightly different perspective. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. And so here's where the contradiction seems to arise. Satan hindered us, which meant Satan made it so we couldn't do it. And that's what they're saying. They're saying well, Satan's stronger than God. And, you know, that word hindered here is Strong's uh, Concordance number 1465. It means to cut into, to impede, to detain. So it's cut into like, you know, how you break up a road or place an obstacle in the path. You know, Satan didn't place flaming demons on the path to the city, you know, or whisper in Paul's ear to go to other places, but he stirred up controversy. He used these ungodly actions of a mob to those unbelieving Jews to create this circumstance that prevented Paul's trip. So, and, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, finish. Okay, okay. So, so you know, when you say, when you look at it that way, the question is, was Satan's power bigger than God's power in Paul's life? Because that's what these folks are saying. So, Julie, how do we come around and just p- kind of put those two parts of the First Thessalonian scriptures together? In order? Well, I, th- I think we need to expand the picture a bit. Uh, and that's where we move on to 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was giving me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And God's always stronger, but that doesn't mean Satan can't try to trip us up using a variety of methods. Um, you know, Rick, give me a practical example. How uh, You know, here we are preaching the gospel, and you do this every day um, that you can. How, how is Satan interfering? Is he sending, you know, flaming demons to sit in your front lawn so that you can't get out? No, that would, there, there was once a whole bunch of trees that fell down across our driveway. <laughs> I remember tornado. that, you had a tornado, yeah, maybe, maybe he was in the wind. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things that has happened, you know, through, through life, 
that, that has been actually pointed out to me is Satan can sometimes try to get us through the experiences of our family. And, you know, you have difficult trials and, and, and things happen to you when your kids are younger, perhaps, or, you know, with, with, with drama and trauma in life, you know, um, I've, and, and I've had a lot of trauma in my own life. And it's always around me. And it was pointed out to me, you know, Rick, you know, it looks like Satan is trying to get you through your family. Another is trying to distract you so much from doing the work that has been given to you as an opportunity. We have to be careful of that. And now look, that doesn't mean you don't pay attention to those things. What it means is you keep them in perspective so that we can see God's will through them as we get through them. So Satan can get us, try to get us all kinds of different ways, and we need to be on guard exactly the way Paul describes himself. So there is no contradiction here. So Jonathan, what's our conclusion for this? Is Satan stronger or is God stronger? This comparison simply requires common sense and does not remotely resemble a contradiction as the powers of good and evil are always at work in this age. Satan was powerful and influential, but he could not derail the power of God through Christ. Okay, and that's the key. Satan is powerful. He is influential. But when you have God's Spirit with you, you cannot be derailed unless you choose to go down that road, and we know the Apostle Paul did not choose such a thing. So, look, when it comes to biblical controversy, it's amazing how uncommon common sense is. We need to use our heads. If humility regarding our lives and experiences is a necessary Christian trait, did Paul not get the message? What's up, everybody? It's your CQ voiceover guy, reminding you we also want to talk to you before and after the podcast. Send us a message at ChristianQuestions.com for any and all feedback, or message us on our social media channels. Have a topic idea or just questions about what we're talking about? Reach out at ChristianQuestions.com. When you think about it, accusing the Apostle Paul of being full of himself is a pretty serious accusation. We know that the Twelve Apostles are the Twelve Pillar Foundations of all Christianity, and that means they were chosen to be living definitions of Christ-likeness for the rest of us. And folks, let's not forget that. They were chosen to be living definitions of Christ-likeness for the rest of us. That's the way we should be viewing the writings and experiences of the Apostle Paul, because scripturally they are not self-contradictory, as we will continue to find. So um, let's do this. Let's go to another uh, soundbite from the Apostle Paul was the Antichrist. Now, we know he wasn't, okay? And we're, we're, we're bringing these out for the, for the purpose of showing you what an alternative viewpoint looks like how they think, and where they go with these things. And look, these individuals are studied, and they're serious, okay? This is not a joke to them. This is something very, very serious to them. So here, we, they're going to be talking about who the dominant uh, apostle of the New Testament was. So it's in, actually interesting that this non-disciple of Jesus ended up being so dominant in early Christianity because... You know, he never met Jesus by his own account. Uh, everything he got, uh, he got from Revelation. 
how are we to verify that Jesus actually revealed anything to Paul? And clearly, a lot of the early Christians did not agree with him. So Paul insists in Galatians that he was sent by the resurrected Christ and made the point, I'm as much sent as you are. And if you knew Jesus before the crucifixion, that doesn't make a bit of difference. Everything is new now in 2 Corinthians. You know, I, 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 I got to say something here. It, it, the thing that bothers me so much is they're taking the Apostle Paul and they're essentially trying to throw him out of the New Testament. Okay, A lot of what they talk about in terms of contradictions are in the book of Acts. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did. So if you're going to throw out the book of Acts because the Apostle Paul's in it, then you might as well throw out the Gospel of Luke because the same guy wrote both books. And what you're doing now is now you are picking and choosing which pieces of Scripture you want to keep so you can feed what looks to me, and this is a Rick opinion, like a pet peeve. I say dig deeper so you can get over it. Just saying, okay? Um, Jonathan, or, or uh, we, contradiction or needing clear explanation, Julie, what's next? Okay, so this is a biggie for people. And, and you know what, real quick, you said all these things about what these people are saying. The ironic part is, this is what Paul dealt with firsthand <laughs> while he was alive. These are the same things that people hurled at him back then, yeah. that he's not a real apostle, and we went over the whole Damascus story, so listen to part one. Um, okay, so our next question is, was Paul a humble servant, or was he full of himself? Now, the big complaint is that at best, he was overly ambitious, and at worst, he was downright arrogant. And he uses terms like my gospel or our gospel or the gospel I preach to you. And there's so many scriptures that show us how God values humility and we aren't supposed to boast about our virtue or to be proud. What say you? Absolutely. We are clearly taught, don't boast about your virtue. Don't be proud. Let's start with Romans 11 verse 20. Stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, which means opinionated, but fear. And look at 1 Peter 5.5, 5. clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that is one side. Now, the other side is this. Paul, contrary to this teaching, continually boasts of his faith and says we should too. Romans 15, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. How about Hebrews 3, 6? But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. Now we have two verses in 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote. The first is chapter 5, verse 12. For we give you an occasion to glory on our behalf. And 2 Corinthians 11, verse 17. I speak, as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting. All right, what do we do now? Four times Paul says to be proud. <laughs> and, you know, you read those last two texts from 2 Corinthians. I counted 13 times in that book he uses boast or boasting. And we know he used that letter, 2 Corinthians, to defend himself against his critics. So in this week's CQ Rewind show notes, in the bonus material, we're going to list Paul's credentials that he used to defend himself in this chapter as they appear in the Life Application Study Bible Commentary. But, you know, I've got to add to this list of what, Jonathan, you just read, 
because Paul's supposed arrogance, what do you think of the fact that he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. <laughs> and in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he said, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. You know, you'd assume that an apostle would say, well, look at what Christ did. Follow him, not, hey, watch me watching Christ. So what does that mean? Okay, well, you know, and, and those are those are good verses to to begin the discussion, because we need to understand the, the, the attitude of those sentences, follow me as I follow Christ. Is he saying, hey, I'm awesome, just follow me because I'm following Christ and, you know, we can all follow together. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, follow me in the ways that I am following Christ. There's a big difference. So in other words, follow me so that what you see that is Christ-like in me, imitate, because obviously that's good. And the flip side of that is if there's something in me that is not Christ-like, don't go there. Follow me in the way that I am following Christ, not follow me because I exist and I'm so cool. All right? There's a big difference. What he's saying is I am your conduit to take you to your hero, and that's Jesus. I'm here to show you the way. He's not saying your, your destination is me. You're say, he's saying your destination is Christ. I'm here to get you there. That's my job. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just one other quick thing, Julie, just a, a quick example of that. You know, we talk about oftentimes on Christian questions. We've been, we, Jonathan, you and I have had this opportunity for almost 22 years. Thank the Lord. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. He has given us this opportunity. Do you ever wonder why we ended up with this? <laughs> I wonder that all the time, like, what? But see, but the fact that's the fact. So when we look at it and we say, he has given us an opportunity to talk to the world about the gospel. You know, people can look at that and say, well, you know, are, are, aren't you bragging? And the answer is no, I'm just sharing with you. There's this huge open door in front of us. Look what he's given us. Look how blessed we are. And I think if we get that attitude, we can understand a lot more of what Paul is saying. So, Julie, let's let's get through this. So we again, we're going to go back to context to find the answer to this issue was, was he bragging? And I think the problem is simple. We're attempting to compare things that aren't comparable. You know, pride and conceit are a far cry from what boasting often means in Scripture. So there's something called appropriate boasting. Jonathan, what is that all about? Yeah, Paul is declaring what appropriate boasting is. And we'll quote his Old Testament source as well. This is really interesting. 1 Corinthians 1.31, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How about that for (laughs) uh, why he's boasting? It's because of the Lord. Now that word boast means to vaunt. In a good or bad sense, I had to look up vaunt. It means praise something excessively. That's what vaunt is. So he's boasting in the Lord excessively because he can't help himself because the Lord's done so much for him. That's amazing. But what about the Old Testament uh, that he was quoting in, in what he was saying? Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, which is God, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Okay, so here's the thing. The Apostle Paul quotes that Jeremiah scripture and says, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And so 
what we have is that word for boasting that we're going to be focusing on, because it's, it's that Greek word, Jonathan, you said, to vaunt. But here's what the Jeremiah scripture says. If you're wise, don't glory in that. If you are uh, mighty, don't glory in that. If you are rich, don't glory in that. If you're going to glory, if you're going to praise something excessively, praise the fact that you know God. Wow. That is appropriate boasting. That's what Paul says because he's quoting Jeremiah. So this is not Paul's opinion on appropriate boasting. This is Jeremiah's definition of appropriate boasting. So, Julie, where do we go with that from here? Well, okay, so, but Jonathan quoted the original four boasting scriptures. So, let's see if Paul fulfills that standard of appropriate boasting. So, the first one was uh, Romans 15, 15, looking at the context, stretch it out into 17 and 18 as well. But I have written very boldly to you because of the grace that was given me from God. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And now this is interesting. This word boasting is a different word, and it means boasting properly the act by implication, the object in a good or bad sense. So this word is very, 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 very closely related to the previous word. They're all really different forms of the same thing. So the apostle saying here, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. Aha! In things pertaining to, guess who? Pertaining to God. So when you look at Paul's boasting here, it is entirely appropriate. Just ask Jeremiah. He told us. He laid the groundwork. Paul's boasting is not because he's great. It's because God is great, and Christ was the sacrifice that gave us access to him. What terrific boasting. You know, Paul knew that it was only because of God's grace that he was allowed to be a servant of the gospel. And he realized in spite of his education, his talent and passion, he was no better than any other Christian. So, you know, he, he called himself this, what, what was he, this, the The, the least of the apostles, least of the apostles, the greatest sinner. You know, he, he, he put himself in where he belonged. Here's another good scripture that gives us good perspective in Hebrews three, five through six. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. And this, again, is another word for boast. And this word means a boast in a good or bad sense. But think about the attitude of Paul in his ministry. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, not my strength, Christ's strength. He relied fully on our Lord to see him through every experience. Yeah, and, and, and in this verse in Hebrews, because they said, well, here, Paul's boasting again. What he's saying is, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. Not the boast of our personal talent firm unto the end. Not the boast of my personality firm unto the end, not the boast of my incredibly large eco, ego firm unto the end, it's the boast of our hope. And Jonathan, the hope that Christianity is given is the greatest hope in all of the world. Is that something to lift up and praise excessively? Absolutely. <laughs> Join us, please, because it is an incredible thing. I think there's a difference between Paul being authoritative and 100% convinced 
of his message and being arrogant. You know, so um, let's take a look at some other scriptures in our Second Corinthians, where Paul is defending himself overall in that book. Second Corinthians five twelve and fourteen. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For the love of Christ controls us. And also, continue in Second Corinthians. Let's go to verse eleven, verse seventeen. I speak as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Okay, so so in that first uh, second Corinthian scripture, you know, those who take pride in the appearance, not the heart, you know, so you can be proud of us. You can say, okay, there it is. There's the word. You can be proud of me. Well, first of all, it says proud of us. And then in verse 14, it says, for the love of Christ controls us. The word proud is one of those words for lifting up. So what is he really saying? I want you to lift up the fact that the love of Christ controls us. That's what he's talking about. If you want to try to uh, pinpoint the Apostle Paul, please read the words. Please read the content and get the thought behind what he's saying. You know, in that 2 Corinthians eleven seventeen, you know, we had talked about this last week, and that was his, uh, Julie, remember, that was the sarcasm section? Sarcastic, yeah. Yeah, so he's, and he was playing the part of his accusers, actually, saying, and this is how you talk about me. So, so again, go to last week's program for, for that. So now let's take a look at what to stay away from. This is a different kind of boasting that shows up in, like, 2 Timothy 3, 2. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. And this word for boastful, guys, means braggart. So stay away. <laughs> yeah, and you know, that's a very different thing than to lift something up, to, to, to praise something excessively. A braggart is very, very much focused on one's own person, one's ego. And you got to be really careful of that. So, um, Jonathan, next, another scripture that, that's very similar is in 1 John 2.16. Now, it's interesting, first, before we go to 1 John, that the Apostle Paul writes the Second Timothy scripture, and he says this bragging is something that is evil. Now, John, in 1 John 2.16, says this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And Rick, this word is a slightly different than braggart. This is braggadocio. I had to be Italian <laughs> to do that one. Okay. <laughs> so just real quick, there's, so you'll see in the CQ Rewind show notes, you know, we've thrown a lot of Greek words at you, right. but there's two different types of boasting. There's word number 274455546. In Greek, they all mean the same word that is generally translated to glory in or to rejoice. But the bad kind of Greek word is number 212, 213. That's the braggart, the braggadocio is what yeah. you think Jonathan just said. <laughs> Self-confidence in a negative sense. So there's a dramatic difference between the two. And every time Paul, quote, boasts, it is the appropriate boasting in godliness. You know, and just, just, a, just a quick example, okay, in, in terms of, of a practical application. Because sometimes people, you know, you get stuck on a, on a thought and you just can't get rid of it. Well, you know, the, the idea of, of, um, of boasting, I've had experiences where uh, someone is going through something very, very difficult in life, and it's something they've never gone through before, and they don't understand it. And 
literally have had the experience of having gone through that exact same experience, not once, not twice, not three, but four, five, or six times with other individuals. And being able to go to that person and say, hey, look, and, and bottom line is to say, I've got a lot of experience with this, with all of these things in, in the past, and I can tell you that your perspective on this is missing much. I want you to have confidence in my perspective rather than yours. Now, is that boasting or is that potentially saving somebody's life by showing them it's bigger than they, than they know, but fortunately, there is experience that can help them? See, that's what we have to realize the Apostle Paul does. He's saying, my experience, the visions I've been given, the gospel that I've, I've been given to preach, I'm bringing to you and I'm pouring myself out with it so you can get it. This is really important. He is not, by any stretch, a boaster. Jonathan, what's the conclusion? Scriptural comparisons need to be made carefully as the use of words in ancient languages uh, do not always readily coincide with our use of words today. The Apostle Paul shows us that glorying in our lives should always be towards God and his grace and is far removed from pride and bragging. Okay, we need to understand there is a dramatic difference between those two things. This is a great lesson for us as to what we should and should not lift up in our lives. Let us only glory in God. We are now clear on what we should honor. Does Paul tell us how to throw out everything else on the scrap Did you know we have one-page companion Bible studies for our most recent podcast episodes? Listen to the episode, follow along with our CQ Rewind show notes, and for your own bite-sized Bible study or group study, check out the Bible study questions content. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Bible study in the main menu. Have some study time and then contact us with any additional questions or comments. Now let's continue the conversation. Because being a Christian is so contrary to our instinctive human nature, the Apostle Paul teaches us uh, teachings, excuse me, were very specific about details. Our next area of supposed contradiction deals with how we treat those who don't share our faith. Some say Paul couldn't decide between being rude and being gracious. Now, you know... (laughs) I know that people have troubles with these kinds of things, but, you know, the idea of deciding between being rude and being gracious is a really kind of, a, kind of an odd situation to, to find yourself in. Um, let's see. Da, da, da. So let me go to this soundbite uh, from the Apostle Paul was the Antichrist according to the first Christians. He wasn't, okay? Let's just make sure that we're clear on that. But here is their perspective. Now, this seems to be the tip of an iceberg, though, where he's trying to decide a larger issue. If these Gentiles who really like our new religion want to join, but don't want to become Jews, uh, and this is very common, there were loads of Greeks and Romans going to the synagogue every Sabbath, and they said, this is great, this is better than the pagan garbage we were brought up with, these bed-hopping deities and so on. These people have a real uh, uh, faith here. But uh, to tell you the truth, I don't want to get circumcised. I don't want to stop having uh, shrimp cocktails and ham sandwiches. Uh, do you mind if I just attend and listen to the scripture and the sermons and juice it? Come on, no problem. Uh, you're not Jews, but that's all right. Well, that's the kind of issue facing Paul. 
I got these people lining up to, to be baptized as Christians. Do I have to tell them they've also got to be circumcised and no more ham sandwiches? You know, there comes a point when you listen to this kind of thing where you have to say, okay, enough already. I don't know what they do with the scriptures that talk about the apostle Peter, whom they love and adore, having the vision of eating meat that was unclean. Remember that? And remember what God says to him, what I have made clean is clean. Okay, so, you know, they're, they're putting this on the Apostle Paul that, you know, he's saying, well, I want to let these people keep eating their ham sandwiches. No, the reality, the fact, the scriptural fact of the matter is God opened up the way to the Gentiles by relaxing the stringent requirements of the law. It's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. Ask the Apostle Peter. He'll tell you. Okay. Christianity was not supposed to be just a another sect of Judaism. This was a brand new path, a brand new way um, opened up from Jesus. So it's 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 it's, it's it goes against really the entire teachings of the New Testament. The yeah. whole reason we're here. And actually, the next two weeks we're getting into supposed contradictions of the Apostle Paul against Jesus. So this is that's where we will get into into those things in much much more detail. So let's go to our next contradiction for today's podcast. So contradiction or needing a clear explanation, Julie? What's next? Well, this supposed contradiction says that Paul differed in how he treated people that didn't listen to his teachings. So does he make it up as he goes along? If he likes the person, according to Paul, are we supposed to treat unbelievers rudely or wisely? Okay. All right. Our first issue says treat people rudely or just altogether avoid them. First uh, <laughs> Timothy 6.20, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And uh, this same avoidance is found in 2 Timothy 2 verse 16. Now let's go to two more examples. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And in 2 John 1.10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Now, specifically on, on bring this teaching, we understand that to mean false doctrine, bringing a different teaching other than the teaching of Christ. Uh, so that's kind of what that meant. But now let's look at the other side. Treat people with wisdom and kindness. Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And lastly, in Peter, 1 Peter three fifteen, he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So, rude or kind, which is it? They both can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that answer, this one's really simple. It's, it's, it's in recognizing who's speaking, who's their audience, and what's their purpose. And so, when you read all those, this is where you draw the line texts, they all have to do with protection of the gospel message. And for Timothy specifically, he's being taught these leadership skills. You know, Paul's showing him how to appropriately stand for truth and then showing him to teach others how to do the same. You can't let these outside influences and these false teachers that were, that were going around these churches 
You cannot let them in. You've got to stand. Uh, let's look at some of those leadership skills that he taught for Timothy for his protection. First Timothy 6, 20 to 21. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, with some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So he's basically saying, you don't have time for the noise. Don't waste your time. It's irrelevant to Christ-likeness. How about a practical example? Politics. If you are called to follow Christ, you're an ambassador for heaven. We are living in a foreign country, representing God. Avoid worldly politics. Our goal is Christ. Pretty straightforward. Absolutely. And that's what the Apostle's saying. Avoid the noise. You don't have time for it. Julie, just a couple of lines from Vernon McGee, some commentary. Uh, Science so falsely called, uh, that scripture that was just read, should be translated the falsely named knowledge. Paul is speaking of the Gnostic heresy, but this certainly could be applied to all human philosophies. And, and the Gnostic heresy of the time was, you know, the acquisition of knowledge was everything, and it's all about knowledge. And so what he's saying is, don't waste your time with that. You, it's, it's a place to get stuck. You end up in debates. It's not worth it. You have bigger things to do because you are to be a leader of Christians. So as we move from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy, Paul here tells Timothy that as the spiritual leader, that he was just speaking of him becoming in 1 Timothy, uh, you need to continually build up the body of Christ by focusing them on all things spiritual like I just am focusing you. So let's go to the 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 16 verse. And again, this is the one, one of those verses that those individuals say, this causes a contradiction because Paul is saying to be rude to uh, other people. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Okay, so don't wrangle about words. You know, don't get into the little, little nitty, nitty, nitty gritty discussions because it can get you way off track. Verse 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. See, there's a difference between wrangling about words and then trying to understand them through the word of truth. And he's saying, focus yourselves on God's word because that's the only place you're going to get this truth. Now verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Again, avoid the noise, for goodness sakes. Boy, if anybody knew about wrangling of words, it was... Paul, when yeah. he was Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, that's what they devoted their entire life to, yeah. is wrangling over every single tiny word, and they missed all that was going on around them. They missed the Messiah was right in front of them. Yeah, and, and Jesus, in Matthew 23, as a matter of fact, he spends that entire chapter condemning that kind of behavior, of which Paul, at that time, as a very young man, was learning how to, how to behave like. So it's really interesting that he has come so far as to say, don't go there. So again, he's not saying to be rude. He's saying to keep your priorities in order. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 16. So now we want to go on to the next scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. Paul is here warning against those who take the name of Christ for their own gain and power. So again, it's the context of what he says to help us understand what's happening. We're going to read a very condensed version of these verses. 
But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Okay, so he's saying in the last times, and he gives a long description, we just cut it really, really short, and he says they're holding to a form of godliness, but they really don't have true godliness because they deny its power. He says avoid them. Don't spend time with them. They are not part of what's important here. And then verses 6 through 9. For among them are those who enter in the households and captivate weak women weighed down with sin, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just like Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Okay, so again, the Apostle Paul is not saying don't to, to be rude. He's saying don't waste your time and your mind power. Don't give your heart the temptation to branch out and latch on to something that is unchristlike. And he uses this example from the Old Testament of Janus and Jambres, who did stand against Moses, and it cost them their lives because they stood against true godliness. Paul is saying, don't go there. This is not rude. This is talking to a young leader saying, here's how you spend your time, and here's how you teach others to spend their time. This is setting up a hedge of protection around you yes. so that there's a, those, those, those flaming demons that are sitting on your driveway can't come into the house. You like that flaming demon. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> I know, you're really stuck on it's that. It's a visual thing. I, you can see them. <laughs> <laughs> if you, you know, sometimes if you looked at a pile of money like a flaming demon, maybe that would make you think twice about having to have so much of it. Yeah, there's that's a good point. So, so again, it's not rudeness at all. It is caution. And it is thinking in a humble, Christ-like manner, and it's being disciplined to keep your mind on the most important things. Now we go to the scripture that seemed to be the most dramatic of them, and interestingly, it's not the Apostle Paul who says or writes this, it's actually the Apostle John. So the Apostle John in this next scripture is issuing the same warning about those who deceive in the name of Christ. His warning's simple, and it's very similar. He says, have nothing to do with them. Second John 1, verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So in summary, we're supposed to be kind to those around us, even those who don't believe like we do. But there are things that are sticky, meaning we can get embroiled in debates and the minutia of life that can take up all of our consecrated time that's better spent working on something for the Lord. So what I take from this is we need to be hardlined when it comes to protecting ourselves from satanic influence. And he's giving special warning to leaders of the church not to let error creep in and hurt the flock. 
And he's saying, you know, and he's talking about deceivers. He's not talking about people that you may just disagree with a little bit. He's talking about out-and-out deceivers um, who do not acknowledge Christ as coming in the flesh, but they're using the name of Christ to, 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 for, for self-gain. And he's saying, avoid those. Don't let them into your house. Is that mean? No. No, it's not. Because you are t- protecting this hedge of protection. You're putting up around yourself because you don't need that influence. Christ is much, much greater and bigger than that. We need to focus on the right things. So, Jonathan, what's the conclusion here? Scriptural understanding can only occur when we know who is speaking or writing, who they are speaking or writing to, and the specifics of what they are addressing. The Apostle Paul never told anybody to be rude to unbelievers, but he did instruct Timothy to avoid falsehood and be wary of those who bring it. You know, and it's ironic that the, the, the person that you have to take the most issue with is John, not Paul here, for those people who are after Paul. So, you know, it, it, it's a matter of, of getting scriptural perspective. Paul has a gracious attitude towards all, and we just need to be able to be big enough to admit that that's what he's actually talking about. So, what have we learned here? It's really a good idea to stop, think, and examine before we decide to speak. What about the places Paul went after his conversion? Do Paul and Luke contradict each other? Other podcasts may have show notes, but we have the ultimate bonus episode show notes that simply go way beyond and are much more comprehensive. Look for the CQ Rewind show notes tab on our episode pages. And a big thank you to our Christian Questions volunteer team for releasing this exclusive content every week on ChristianQuestions.com. Once again, as we investigate the Apostle Paul's life, we come to another example of detail, this time having to do with how Scripture is written. It's really easy to forget that so many different people wrote the different books of the Bible, and they often had different objectives in their writing. So, no need for another soundbite here. We've had enough. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. So, contradiction or needing a clear explanation, Julie, what's next? Okay, so this argument critics present is twofold. First, they say that the timeline Paul provides after his conversion in the letter that he wrote to the Galatians doesn't match what Luke wrote about him in the book of Acts. So the timeline. But second, they say the book of Acts implies that Paul met with all of the apostles in Jerusalem But in his letter to the Galatians, Paul says he only met with Peter and Jesus' natural brother, James, during that time. So, of course, their conclusion is Paul's a liar and shouldn't be trusted. (laughs) It's It's a big leap. But the question is, do Paul and Luke's, or does Paul and Luke's stories contradict regarding when Paul went to Jerusalem after his conversion? Okay. All right. Here's a statement made by those who assert a contradiction. In Acts chapter 9, verses 19 to 28, here's a summation. Shortly after his conversion, Paul went to Damascus, then Jerusalem, where he was introduced by the apostles by Barnabas, and there spent time with them, going in and out among them. But Paul was saying in Galatians 1, 15 to 20, He made the trip to Jerusalem three years later, then saw only Peter and James. 
So are our, the apostles at odds? Uh, go ahead. Well, let's keep two things in mind. Luke was with Paul when Galatians was written. So this meant that Luke had firsthand knowledge of what happened to Paul. And also remember, Luke probably wrote Acts at least 10 years after Paul wrote Galatians. Uh, so this means Luke had the advantage of seeing the details Paul wrote about his own life. So it's going to be really weird for there to be a conflict, you know, that right up front, because they were they were together so many times and they he knew what was happening. So we got to look closer. Okay, so let's look into Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And again, Galatians was probably written A.D. 40 to A.D. 50, depending on who you talk to, but in that, in that date range. Jonathan, go ahead. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Okay, so he's talking um, about the experience with conversion and with Ananias, and he's saying it was so powerful that he had no need to stop and think. He just knew what he was supposed to do, and between what Jesus said to him in that, in that vision and what Ananias verified to him, he was good. He was ready to go. So verse 17 nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Okay, so his conviction was so deep that he didn't uh, even need to verify his mission with the apostles. He mentions the apostles here, and he said, I didn't even have to go to Jerusalem. I knew what I was called to do. This is big because this is showing you the power of what had happened. And let's finish verse 17. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So he's summing up his early ministry. And this is a key point, that he's making a summation here. He doesn't give the details of his time in Arabia and Damascus, and we really don't know much of what happened then. But he did directly line up his conversion with his Jerusalem visit, which he says is three years later. So this is where the Jerusalem thing comes in in the Galatian scripture. So he's showing lots of things happening in between. Then verses 18 and 19 of Galatians chapter 1 and 20. I'm sorry. And 20, sure. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. And I just wanted to clarify the James... Uh, the Lord's brother is not an apostle. It's Jesus's natural brother, Mary and Joseph's son. Um, he was, though, a disciple and a real strong leader uh, for the Christians. Yes, yeah, he was. He was significant amongst the Christians in Jerusalem. So that's the Galatians account, and it clearly says that three years after these things, he went to Jerusalem and he saw Peter. Okay, so let's stop and check in on our contradiction questions. So remember, the first question was, where did Paul travel after his conversion experience? And, you know, we'll have all this information and even a map in the CQ Rewind show notes. But here's the sequence of travel. He does the conversion on the road to Damascus. He goes to Damascus itself and witnesses about Jesus. He goes to Arabia. We're not told what he does there. He returns to Damascus and then he goes to Jerusalem, meets Peter and James for 15 days. And, but I did have a question. You know, Paul says in what Jonathan read, three years later I went to Jerusalem. 
does that mean three years from the conversion experience, three years after his second stay in Damascus, or did he spend three years in Arabia? Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, <laughs> well yeah. that does sound like a contradiction now, doesn't it? Right? Well, no, no, what that sounds like is not enough information to give a very definitive answer. We can give a good guess here. But when there's not enough information, you don't want to make it up. So what he's saying is there was a period of time. That's the key. So he is saying there was a period of time before I went to Jerusalem. And if it's three years total, or is it three years after the experience in Arabia, my, my thought, and this is just a thought, is that it was, there was about six years before he actually goes to Jerusalem. But again, that can't be verified by these verses. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay because it's not critical to anything. He's giving a summation of certain things that happened. Do you think that he might think they would have been skeptical and that maybe he wanted to prove that he was genuine in yeah. his ministry before he went and faced these people? That yeah. would be, okay. Yeah, yeah. So there was time necessary for that. So the second contradiction question has to do with who he met in Jerusalem. So here in Galatians, remember he said he only met Peter and Jesus' natural brother James. Paul is being specific because he once again is defending his own position as an apostle. You know, Peter was that chief apostle. But James, you know, as Jonathan said, he was very important. He was the leader of the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. So by being specific about meeting Peter and James and spending 15 days with them, you know, Paul was showing he was accepted by the authorities that others would accept. Right. Okay. So that's where we are. So now let's take the Galatians account that Paul gave to what Luke wrote in Acts. Okay, so now Luke wrote Acts sometime after AD 60. This is important. We'll come back to that as to the why for that in a little bit. His objective for writing, Luke's objective for writing Acts was to summarize what the apostles plural did. Okay? He was not an eyewitness to many of the events. He learned them from the apostles and from others. But here's the thing, and you already mentioned this, Luke traveled with the apostle Paul and would have learned of his conversion firsthand. Luke's account of what happened after his conversion is shown in Acts 9, 19 through 30, and it is a condensed version of the events. He's not trying to show you the big, big, big picture. He's trying to show you the skeleton to say these are the basic important things. So, Jonathan, let's go through that. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with disciples who were at Damascus, And I just wanted to say, this is Ananias and his closest brethren that came to to help nurture um, Saul at that time. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening on the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So he is converted, and in a matter of days, he needs to run for his life. You know, And it shows you the zeal that he had for Christ, something that these folks who don't like the Apostle Paul seem to forget or something. Anyway, so as we shall soon see, what happens here after he's lowered in a basket, this is a natural break in Luke's account. He's in in the book of Acts. He is giving us some factual information on different pieces, and there's a natural break here. And um, so Luke's reporting these events. 
He's reporting times, places, but not necessarily all of the experiences. That would be left to Paul. We've already seen some of that in Galatians chapter 1. So Jonathan, let's go back to Acts chapter 9, and the next verse after lowering, lowering Paul in a basket is where people get confused. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were all attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarshish. So going back to the first controversy, so notice this account in, that Luke wrote does not mention this trip to Arabia or that second stop in Damascus. It goes right, right to Jerusalem. But now go back to the second controversy. Who did Paul meet in Jerusalem? Remember, we read in Galatians 1.18 that he only met with Peter and Jesus' natural brother, James. Here it seems as though Barnabas took him in to meet all of the apostles. So which is correct. Did he meet them all or just, just two of them? Um, and actually, one wasn't even technically an apostle, as Jonathan said. So what, what do we think on that? Okay, so, and, you, and the, the key, I think, was you see here it seems that he met all of the apostles, and we need to examine that carefully. And, and the thing is this, Luke did not contradict Paul, uh, first of all, on the timing of his trip to Jerusalem. Rather, he followed suit with Paul in his connection of the conversion experience with his first Jerusalem experience. Now, that's an important aspect of this thing, because Paul, we're going to find out, we're going to go to the other two times that Paul actually tells the story of his conversion, and there are some very significant keys that always show up when Paul tells it, and one of the keys is he always mentions that he went to Jerusalem. Even if it was years later, he always mentions that, and you've got to think, well, why would he mention that? And the, just to, to lay an answer out before we get to the scriptures, the answer is because meeting with the Apostle Peter was a significant verification and a significant beginning to the actual true ministry of the Apostle Paul. So to be converted is wonderful. To meet with the Apostle Peter and then to go out and truly begin your ministry is the finishing touches of that wonderful conversion. So in Paul's mind, those two things look like they are entirely, entirely connected. So uh, let's go to, um, okay, Julie, so what's our first, our first uh, account that we're going to touch on here? Well, who, well, who, who did, who did he meet? Okay. What, what apostles did he meet? And, and okay. I think there's, you know, some possible explanations. I was wondering if maybe because he said, you know, Barnabas took him by the hand and showed him the apostles. And then he, it was later described that these apostles were Peter and James. I thought perhaps those were the two that he met and perhaps the others wouldn't refuse to meet with him because they were still skeptical of him. I thought that may be one explanation. And, and I, and I tend to agree with that explanation. I think that when it says that, you know, the, that the Barnabas takes him kind of takes him by the hand and says, I'm going to bring you to the apostles. My in my mind, though now we don't know exactly how this happened. Okay, so there are a couple of potential explanations here, but what we do know is that according to Galatians, he met with Peter and he met James. We know that, and he says he didn't meet anybody else. So we need any of the other apostles. So we need to accept that as true. 
Why didn't he? One, they could have been just refusing to meet with him, even though Barnabas brings him and says, let me talk to them for you. Wait here. I'm going to see if I can talk to them. And maybe they said, no, we don't want to see him. Maybe they weren't there. We don't know that either. Okay, what we do know is that he met and stayed with Peter. And that was the key to this whole thing. So he is able to go round about Jerusalem with Barnabas and Peter and James. We know that. So it fits. Now, are all the details clear? No, they're not. But they're clear enough to clear up what people say are contradictions. And that's the key thing, is you've just got to see what the story says and don't read into it make assumptions. It's really easy to make those assumptions. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So let's move on to the conversion story. Number two, here's the events after that happened. This is Saul talking to an angry Jewish mob and he is telling them how a devout man named Ananias helped him. So let's drop in on Ananias's words. That's in Acts 22, 15 to 18. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. There's Jerusalem again. (laughs) Yeah, and see, that's important. So he's witnessing to this angry mob and he brings Jerusalem up. And it says, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, happened to be several years later, but that's not, that's not the significant thing. The significant thing is he mentions it. Why? Because that's where he met with Peter. That's where his ministry starts. That's where he and Barnabas get together to go out and, and preach the word everywhere. Can you imagine you've got this angry mob screaming, kill him, kill him. And he's like, okay, so then I went to Arabia <laughs> and then I went back to, no, wait, wait, I went back to Damascus. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You get to the point and omission is not contradiction, Yes. nor is it deception. You know, a reporter summing up details and leaving an inconsequential part out does not mean the detail didn't happen. And it doesn't mean the reporter is flawed or nefarious. Omission is not contradiction, nor is it deception. And we have to remember that when we read these accounts. It's really important. So, um, Julie, the the other account of uh, Paul's conversion. That's in Acts 26, 19 to 21. Here's that Saul's account before King Agrippa. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. Go ahead, Jerusalem again. Well, Jerusalem again, but no mention of Arabia or that second trip to Damascus. Again, so what? So, so, so what he's saying is the most significant things that happened to me in my early Christian career, if you will, were I was converted, I met Ananias, and I went to Jerusalem. All of the other things in between were the preparation to be able to go to Jerusalem. That's what it boils down to. He doesn't get into detail because it's like, look, that's preparatory work. The big thing is I sat with the apostle Peter, and I stayed with him for two weeks, 15 days. 
And Luke, by this point, Galatians had already been written. Remember, it was yes. about 10 years earlier. So those tiny little details had already been told. There was no reason to retell them in Acts. It's not a contradiction. And the other thing, very quickly before we wrap this up, I know we're a little bit long here, but uh, the other thing that I think is really significant is who is with the Apostle Paul at the very, very, very end of his life? I know, I know. It's Luke. L- it's Luke. In Second Timothy... That's his farewell address in 2 Timothy. And he says, only Luke is with me. Now, Luke, the book of Acts was written by Luke after AD 60. It could be that Luke is putting the pieces of the book. Now, this is pure speculation, but the timing works. It could be that Luke is putting the book of Acts together with the Apostle Paul in his last days. We don't know. We just don't know. What we do know is they were close brothers, they had a bond in Christ, and they were working together, and there is no contradiction between what the two of them said and wrote. So we need to wrap this up. Jonathan, what's the conclusion? Understanding when and why scriptures were written gives solid insight into how differing accounts actually fit together. And Luke is copying what Paul said, and most likely in Luke's presence, about Paul's conversion and his Jerusalem experience three years later. So again, we don't have contradiction. What we do have is confirmation. And we have confirmation because you've got different writers showing this experience. You've got Paul and his experiences, and Luke, his Christian friend and brother who spent so much time with him, bringing these things together for our benefit. So, folks, as we wrap this up, I want to remind you that, um, you know, these things are sometimes tough to get to. But when you deal with supposed contradictions, you need to be willing to dig a little deeper than you normally would because the answers are inevitably always going to be there. And that's what we're finding in this entire contradiction series. We have yet to uncover a supposed contradiction that doesn't have a scripturally sound answer. That's if you're willing to look for it. So for Jonathan, Rick, and Julian Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today as we've talked about how the Bible is the harmonious Word of God. Think about it. Folks, listen. We really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, did the Apostle Paul contradict Jesus? Part one. Talk to you then.